The following is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. Along with him is Gary Hogan, all from IG Private Wealth Management. And you can call them at 905 972 7420. And you can find out more as well at donfox.net. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to see you all. Good morning, Scott. So maybe it's a good idea right off the start of this show, since things sound a little bit different to people, Don, is to once again go over uh, what you're doing and how, although this seems different, it's all kind of the same. Yeah, yeah. There's not a whole lot different. Now, obviously, um, Andy Lister is no longer with the show. As mm-hmm. we said in the last show, he's uh, phasing into his retirement here. And so, uh, no, um, all in great, uh, we left in great terms. No issues there. He's just uh, We just discussed it and uh, he suggested it's it's time to say, okay, well, I'm going to leave the show. On that note, I said, well, that's fine. But uh, um, we've, myself and the team have been, in, you know, doing this for quite some time. In fact, uh, Gary has been a guest speaker, as Jay Lowell has been a guest speaker, all part of my, you know, Fox Group Private Wealth Management. That being said, it's not a separate company. It's still with the mothership, IG Wealth, still the largest um, financial planning company in Canada. It's, uh, you know, manages second to, I think, Royal Bank, actually, in terms of uh, funds. It's the second largest. And so it's, uh, no, we still are dealing with IG. So I did not jump ship to, from, and make and create my own company. It's just a, more like a, a brand within the company is all it is. So just to be clear for those listeners, because if we did get a few uh, people saying, oh, did you leave IG? And says, no, for, for not, couldn't be further from the truth. It's still with IG, of course. And of course, I'm watching you right now on this magic uh, Zoom call, and you're in the exact same office that you were last year. <laughs> I can testify yeah. to that. <laughs> yeah, same backdrop, same everything. No, they didn't kick me out of my office, so all good here. So, uh, it's funny though how people react to change. You know, when someone decides to move on, everybody, well, oh, what's going on? What's happening? Well, it's, that's a good point because that has happened with a lot of advisors. There seems to be, you know, they may stick it out for. Of, you know, maybe a decade, and then they change to a different company. And often doesn't really affect the um, the client as much because often they keep their same investments and they move them to the new company. I'll actually be touching on that later in the show. But yes, changes is almost like, oh, my God, I hope they didn't change. And no, not at all. It's simply, uh, it's just basically from Andy and Don to Fox Group Private Wealth Management, same, same company with IG Wealth Management running the ship behind us. And like you, uh, you all talk about life is an ongoing journey. Life is about change, and that's exactly what you're in the business of doing. We should uh, bring in Gary now, Gary Hogan, and talk about, and he's going to talk about just this: different financial steps through your various stages of life. Yeah, thanks, Scott. You know, I think we would we would all agree that uh, that due to how our lives evolve over time throughout the years, the lens we look through life in general at continues to uh, to change. And I, I was thinking there's, there's, a, there's a great example of this. Um, I, have, uh, I have one family group uh, that I work with as, as clients and I have four generations. So four generations of, of the same family. And it's, it's very, very interesting to me because obviously each generation has its own focus, its own issues to deal with. And, um, you know, just like, just like uh, baby boomers, millennials, the, the gen, you know, X, Y, and Z, and all the other labels that we've attached to different generations. It's 
those generations encompass a number of years where we group them together. Um, and so I wanted to just uh, break this down and, um, and begin with, with young adults and young adults who are, who are new to saving or investing. And then what we would call the accumulators and the, the accumulation stage could be someone ranging from their late twenties right into perhaps their early fifties where they're building and building, working, growing things and working towards their, their lifelong goals. And then, of course, there's the, the pre-retirees. So that typically would be people in their 50s and 60s and, and, and in some cases a little later. And then the retiree group. So, again, could be late 50s, 60s and, uh, and, and well beyond that. And, and certainly that, that range is growing as the years go by, as people live longer. So if we look at the young adult stage, you know, often uh, clients will, and, and Don goes through this uh, as well, all of the, the advisors on our team go through this periodically. We have, we have established clients that will ask us if we will uh, sit down with their ad young adult children and uh, just talk to them about various financial planning uh, issues and, and talk, uh, you know, try and, and help them identify what their, their goals might be and, and really, really begin. And, and many times uh, that results from parents setting the example of having the discipline of of uh, committing to to a plan and and so on and that that often rubs off on the on the young adults um i you know i see a lot of situations where um in fact i can think of one one young uh, young man that i sat down with i was asked by his parents to meet with him and just really help him get going and uh so we we started talking about what his some of his shorter terms and 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 uh priorities are and he said to me he says i don't really know he was 21 years old but he said i don't really know but i'm making money and i just want to save it and i thought that was that was kind of interesting because it's very difficult for someone that age to to have a lot of longer term goals because that's yeah. just not where the, where the focus is of course right yeah, yeah you have and, to go back to uh, when you're that age gary or myself and you think uh, Okay, what's long-term planning? And, and I, I know seeing my own kids, long-term planning might be, you know, what are you doing this weekend? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, of course. Where am I course. going? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's really, you know, a short-term focus. But but the the key in that situation and many others is just, you know, people, young people that are that are so motivated and inclined, it's really just a case of of helping them get started, help them create that savings or or investing mentality, however small to begin with so that it becomes a little more habitual and then they can uh you know they they acquire some momentum over time and and you know that will carry on to to further stages and it could be just you know even putting away 50 dollars a month if that's if that's what they can do but just so that they they start to develop uh that discipline um i think too that uh you know at that stage they're you know in terms of any goals they you know, it might be just to move out of their parents' home. And, and uh, you know, you talked about that last week in terms mm -hmm. of, uh, Mitch, I think, was commenting on that, uh, you know, staying in the in the family home longer versus versus moving out earlier. You know, maybe buying a vehicle, uh, taking, you know, a vacation, and then eventually, I guess, possibly, you know, their, their first home. So so the young adult stage is, is, is pretty simplistic in that regard. And in many cases, it's more about just, as I said, developing a habit. When we move into the, the second phase, which is the accumulator stage, 
that's typically the, in most cases, the longest stage time-wise, because that really continues on until, you know, people are, uh, you know, sort of approaching the, the pre-retirement stage. So entering the, the accumulator stage, uh, you know, we see people or couples, individuals or couples begin to work towards growing their net worth. Their net worth becomes uh, a figure that is, is, is front and center. Um, at least that's what we, we try and coach so that, uh, you know, people begin to understand that their overall net worth is what really allows them to accomplish the, the, the financial and lifestyle goals that they have. Managing debt certainly is a, is a big focus as well. Um, and protecting against uh, potential income loss, um, you know, and that can be done a number of ways. Having an emergency reserve, you know, ensuring that they've uh, they've got adequate uh, risk protection in terms of if you know the what if scenarios. What if something happens? You know, life, disability, critical illness protection, those those kinds of things. And and accumulators often and focus on on trying to find a balance between building. Um, their asset base, but at the same time, enjoying and planning for the things in their lives that, that really matter to them. And, and that's a very common thread amongst uh, accumulators. Um, making decisions about uh, home purchases, you know, rate, you know, you've been through this, Scott, uh, Don and I have been through this, many, many, many of our listeners have been through this, but, you know, raising a family, mm-hmm. replacing vehicles over, over time, you know, in the earlier years, childcare, deciding on vacations, uh, post-secondary education. Scott, I think you're you're we're, just we're right in the middle of that right now, and in, <laughs> yeah, and, enjoy, yeah. and enjoying that resp. I might add. Uh, yes, yes. So that's a you know that's something that uh, fortunately many people are, are are prepared for as best that they can. And then there's of course you know adult children's weddings. And, and, uh, and, you know, charitable giving is another, those are just to name a few things. So in that accumulation stage, and, and that's really, um, as I said earlier, sort of, it could be from late twenties, right through to, uh, you know, to in the 50 age fifties range, estate planning matters become more important and more, more focused. There's more focus on that. Uh, you know, having will, updated wills and powers of attorney, and uh, and in, in some cases, potential future family inheritances can also uh, begin to appear on the radar at that stage, because for some people and, and we've all talked for years, Don, about the transition of wealth, the, the mm-hmm. trillions of dollars uh, transitioning to baby boomers. And uh, and that that, of course, is still uh, still taking place now. And, and even more important is, is how much did the kids get to keep versus the government? Of course, of course. Yeah. And uh, you know, having uh, having a personalized financial plan, and and you know, for years on on this show, that's been that's been talked about and emphasized. Uh, but it's critical to order uh, in order to provide uh, insight in, into what what lifestyle, what the lifestyle future for people in that accumulation stage will likely look at, or look like, I should say, um, year by year down the road. Um, you know, this provides peace of mind, of course, but it, it's also of tremendous help in understanding, you know, what options are actually available in the future. So when we do plans, uh, that's why we we show it year by year by year. So people can get a sense of, okay, based on the assumptions that we've used, I can see what I might expect over time. The accumulation, uh, the accumulator stage, you know, can be summed up quite simply, I think, by just keeping one eye on today while focusing 
you know, the other eye on, on the many tomorrows. Um, one, one thing that came to mind when I was, uh, when I was thinking about this, I, I thought about a, a client of mine who uh, I first met, uh, well, gosh, now it's about uh, 20, 28 years ago, but uh, a few years back, um, I received a card in the mail, really, really lovely card, a, a wonderful note in the card. And, and all it was was just an acknowledgement and a thank you. The very first time I met them, their firstborn was a, was, was a newborn, and, and she was holding the baby in her arms when I went to their home to meet with them. And, you know, th they were accumulators, and now they're pre-retired. But at that time, there was, there was so much ahead of them in terms of what they were working towards and what they wanted to accomplish. And the, and the note that I received just basically said, you know, I just wanted to, I was reflecting on the very first time you came over, et cetera, and um, you're holding my young son in my arms. And, um, and here we are now, we just sent him off to university. Wow. And we, we just wanted to, you know, to thank you for all the involvement and the, the direction and the advice uh, over the years. So that's, that's why the accumulator stage is such a lengthy one. Now the, uh, the pre-retiree scenario, and again, uh, typically that's in the 50s and 60s, pre-retiree pre as a category is really focusing on people who are generally looking at or wanting to ensure that they're on track, that they're on track for their financial and their financial ducks are in a row. It's really as simple as that. And as they move closer to retirement, um, you know, they, they really want to make sure that the expectations that they have and that, that they have had line up with the reality of what their resources can can provide. Hold that thought and, right there, Gary. Hold that thought yeah. right there before you get into this stage of, uh, of financial life stages. And we'll take a quick break here. Then we'll come back and continue yeah. where, you, uh, where you left off. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here along with Gary Hogan from uh, Fox Group Private Wealth Management, donfox.net to find out more. And you can call them at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. Going to take a quick break here and we're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. That's all within the IG Private Wealth Management umbrella. You can call them at 905-972-7420. And you can also check them out, donfox.net. Uh, Gary, you were talking about, well, we're going to go to Don uh, talking about in-kind versus in-cash. But first, you wanted to finish up uh, some uh, items in regard to retirement and financial life stages, Gary. So why don't you finish off with that? Yeah, thank you, Scott. So yes, we were just talking about the, the four basic stages. And, and uh, we finished off at the pre-retirees and uh, I was just mentioning that, you know, that's a stage where people are really, really seriously beginning to take stock of things, uh, lining up what they think retirement might look like, or at least beginning to to go through that process. And, um, and just wanting to make sure that the way that they see themselves living 
um, that they are definitely on track. And that's a big part of the work that we do, of course, with our clients as well. So that's why it's so important to continually have the, uh, their, the, you know, the, the plan, the retirement plan reviewed, updated, recalibrated where necessary. And, um, you know, changing, uh, adjusting rates of return, spending patterns, you know, unforeseen uh, occurrences and, and just different, uh, different uh, objectives that, that people might have developed over time. Uh, estate planning becomes even more critical, um, especially in terms of legacy purposes. And, you know, Don uh, touched on that briefly a little earlier on about making sure that that our clients can and our clients beneficiaries can keep um, as much of the um, the estate as possible rather than our, our friendly government. Um, now, the last stage, retirees. Uh, certainly at that stage. And again, uh, people are retiring at, at quite a range of ages these days, but um, the focus there is really to ensure that sufficient funds are in place and provide for whatever the desired retirement lifestyle is and has been. And, um, you know, aside from health concerns, a, a retiree, a, a retiree, uh, the, the primary worry for for many people and i'm sure our, you know your listeners are have thought about this at different times at least some of them is you know am i going to be in that situation where i outlive what i have and so you know our focus is to make sure that we've developed a plan with our clients so that the plan sees them through uh, accordingly um you know various uh expenditures you know we have to look at that and and talk with people ab about uh, how their their retirement expenditures compare to the uh, the expenditures that they experienced while they were working because when we sit down and, and we we often ask people how they envision the future years annual spending or monthly spending it's very difficult for a lot of people to relate that to um to what they were spending when they were working because some people feel, well, if, you know, I, I will probably only be spending 70% of, um, of what I was spending before. In some cases, people actually end up spending maybe 130% of what they were spending, depending on lifestyle choices. So we have to, we have to nail that down and, and make sure that people uh, understand, um, you know, what they can do uh, relative to what they, they want to do. Um, as the aging process continues, you know, sometimes we see people as the years go by, uh, making decisions or being influenced uh, by others to do things that, uh, that appear to make sense at the time, but in some cases, they, it can be potentially detrimental. And for example, Scott, you know, I'm, I'm sure that you know of situations where uh, perhaps an aging widow or widower uh, has heard that or been told that they should put their house in joint ownership with a, with a son or daughter in order to avoid probate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Which, which is, which of course is the lowest percentage of tax that we pay on anything, by the mm -hmm. way. Um, so, you know, let's assume that there's three adult children in that scenario and, uh, and the parents will calls for an equal distribution, which is often the case of, uh, of assets. Let's also assume that, that one of those three siblings actually lives with the parent in their home. So the parent decides to, uh, put that son or daughter on title. Now, most lawyers, most family law lawyers will caution against this due to the exposure risk that the, that the parent now has in terms of what is expressed in the will, which that house no longer becomes a part of. 
um, upon the passing of the parent. So in that example, the house would automatically be passed to, uh, to the sibling who's living there. And the other two siblings, uh, there's only two things that three things that could happen. The, the sole sibling that's living there who now owns the home can decide to carry on, uh, which is obviously uh, a, a, a family crisis. <laughs> or they can decide to uh, somehow allocate or pay out the other two, which gets a little messy because it's very difficult um, it can be very difficult to, to do that. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that most lawyers would, would recommend, although it's something that's done very often. And, uh, you know, I think, I think what we, we have to realize in situations like that, and it could be an investment too. It could be a non-registered investment for that matter, but I, I think it's, it's really important. And also, uh, just as a, as a point of fact, um, if, if it is equally distributed, of course, um, or the or the house if if the siblings own other homes then you know those homes are the principal residences so there's you know there's potential tax uh, tax consequences capital gains issues there so uh, I just wanted to point that out so these are the these are the four primary stages and I think in in varying degrees we all go through them and therefore the lens that we look through keeps changing accordingly. Mm. Thanks, Gary. Don, yes. you wanted to uh, move on and talk about in-kind versus in-cash. What does that mean? Yes, and I'll just get to that, Scott, but uh, just to touch on Gary for a second. Um, one other thing about joint ownership, Gary, and I, and we, we have come across is you also have to worry about any if anybody were sued, if there was a lawsuit against you, because mm-hmm. once you have joint ownership, here you think you're, you're safe, even if you did put it in all four names, and one of your um, brothers or sisters get out of the blue, gets into a lawsuit. They can go after joint 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 accounts, which would affect all four, including the parent that is still mm-hmm. living in the house. So yeah. yeah, absolutely, Gary. One of those things that you want to really consider before making that decision, because everybody gets so caught up in this probate tax, and it is to your point, it's it's the small tax, and the big tax is the capital gains. And and look at what the houses have been doing in the last year or two. Um, it's fantastic that it would have been tax-free growth if it was left as a principal resident. So, so many things to consider, life stages, um, as you point out, Gary, four generations of clients. That's, That's amazing. That's yeah, outstanding. Very cool. yeah. And I, I think back, I, I currently have a client that is that I got it when he was 14. The mother's a client, the sister a client, the youngest brother was 14 at the time. And I had to convince him not to save the whole hundred dollars a month, just say 50, do something. Well, yeah. here he is now 44 years old, has a, he, and now his kids have RESPs. So it's a, it's absolutely incredible how the generations, they learn from their parents. Mm-hmm. And so you're actually teaching your grandparents to save. So yeah, it's a, it's, it's amazing on, on that side. But uh, yes, I wanted to uh, discuss in cash versus in-kind transfers. And this is kind of a, a uh, lingo um, if you were to move money from one institution to another. So when you're moving it, say from, let's say you're a client of the Royal Bank and you're going to move your money to IG or you're with your IG and you want to move your money to CIBC, you, you, you sign a form and that form allows you to move the funds to the other institution. Now in cash, as it says, you are moving those funds 
you're basically cashing in those funds at the institution where they're being held currently. And a check is delivered to the new institution, which is fine, not a problem there. So they're basically selling their investments first and then moving the money as, as in a check or just cash. It's all usually done internally these days, especially with COVID. The other way is in kind. So they're actually not selling the funds. They're actually moving the funds to the new institution. So if you held, as an example, Bell Canada stock, you move those Bell Canada shares directly from one institution to the next one. So if they went from RBC to IG, therefore we would now hold those Bell Canada shares. You simply are changing the name at the top of your statement. And how does that affect things? It really doesn't affect anything that is registered. So if, it, if your money is currently in an RSP or a TFSA and you move it in cash, no problem. The funds are cashed in, they're transferred over and, and the new institution will invest them however they see fit. That being said, if it's non-registered, that's where the issue is. And because when you sell, as, as you, most listeners would understand, you, when you sell those assets and you move and you, you are now triggering a gain, a capital gain first by when you sell those assets and then they get moved over to the new institution who invest them as, as they see fit. So this is where it's really tricky. You also often have to wonder because I've heard every excuse in the book why it makes sense to, to uh, move it in cash. And most of the time I find it very self-serving. Because if I'm, if I'm dealing with a client I, and I first thing I look at are what are the tax consequences of this? Does it make sense? And, and could we delay it over many years rather than doing in one foul swoop and maybe spread that tax burden over a few years if, again, it makes sense to do so? So I want to kind of go, go through an example. Let's say you invested in a, call it a, a mutual fund, and there was $100,000 was the original investment. So that's called the book value. So when you ever see your statement and you see book value, that's the basically the amount you invested plus any reinvested dividends, which you've already paid some tax on. But in this case, let's just go with a nice, simple $100,000. And it's now growing over many years to $400,000. So there is a $300,000 capital gain. Now, again, as I mentioned, that's not a big deal if it was in a TFSA or an RSP, because you don't have to pay tax on anything in the registered accounts. But on the non-registered account, that triggers a $300,000 capital gain, which $150,000 would fall as a taxable capital gain in that year you sold it. Now, that's a significant amount. That could really move you up a lot of tax brackets. Now, in, the, in this particular example, let's assume you're 65 years old and, you're, and you are therefore receiving your old age security. You've elected to receive it and you're making a net income of $50,000 a year. So clawback isn't an issue. Your you know, old age security clawback doesn't kick in until you make over 80,000 a year. So you've got this wiggle room there. However, if all of a sudden 150,000 lands onto your taxable income that year, that's really gonna hurt you that year, obviously. So in that particular case, your income has gone from $50,000 to $180,000 in that year. And the tax, that has to be paid on that income is $74,000. Plus, and this is no small chunk change here, you also are losing all your old age security, which is $7,400 a year. I know you have to pay tax on it, 
but still in your pocket is $5,200 a year. So by, by moving this money and selling it first and moving it in cash, you created a tax bill of $79,000. Now, at the end of the day, you've now had 400,000. It comes over, let's say you, ha you have to come up with this money somewhere. So you have to take the money out of the funds. So you only have $320,000 to invest at the start. It's gonna take you a while just to grow back to the 400,000 you started with. Now, a lot of the times, this is why I find it very self-serving, an advisor per se, is suggesting, well, we're going to make you more money. It's going to earn 8% there. It's only earning, say, 7% here. And I like to, first of all, question, is that actually true? Because they, I find it somewhat biased at times. But let's assume that is the case. At 8%, after five years, it, it would grow to $471,000. Okay, so now you're ahead. That's good. Um, but uh, that's only $71,000 more than you started with. Okay. Now, the other option is to move it in kind. And so now you've taken that fund, the institution has moved those funds over, you have the exact same fund now with the new institution. And, and so you've got this $400,000 worth of shares. And you say, you know what, I don't want this client to lose their old age security. And I don't want them to be paying tax at 40 three and 50% and tax brackets, because once you make over $150,000, you are in a 48% tax bracket and you've lost your old age security. So there's a lot of consideration. And if the advisor at the other end saying, don't worry about the tax, we'll more than make up for that. Well, I'm gonna show you after the break how difficult that is to do because it's hard to get back that tax you paid. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox is here along with Gary Hogan from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, all within IG Private Wealth Management. You can reach them there at 905-972-7420 or donfox.net. We're going to take a quick break. We're coming right back. You are listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, all within IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420 and donfox.net. Don, you were talking about in-kind versus in-cash. Yes, and again, going back, we're, we're literally saying, okay, if you move the funds in kind, you are not triggering the capital gain at that time. You're simply moving the investments to another institution because you maybe want advice from a different advisor, whatever the case might be, something that Gary, the whole Fox team does on a regular basis. And then we can take a look at it. What's the best tax outcome for you? And so in this particular case, when you move it in kind, I would suggest that this client should try to move their income from 50,000 a year to 80,000 a year because that would keep them in the same 30% tax bracket, plus being 65, they would not lose any of their old age security. So they get no clawback. And so, you know, you gotta pay tax on this money sometime. And my thinking is, well, let's pay it 30% because that's not a bad deal. It's a heck of a lot better than paying it at a, at a later stage. And let's, you know, I really try to keep that old age security. So what happens is if you made $80,000 a year, the tax on that would be, 
$7,367 on that amount of that capital gain. And that works out to $36,000 of tax versus $79,000 of tax. And so there's a tax savings right out of the gate of $42,000 by doing and spreading this over five years. So what you've done, you've taken your 400,000 and we would have cashed in 20% a year. So we would cash in $80,000 a year. And therefore you would, tr you would add 30,000 taxable income to yourself. And that would bring your net income up to 80,000 and the tax bill would be far less. And the overall tax bill over that five-year period, again, saves you a ton of money. So, and you got to keep your old age security for that one year, which is also nice too. Well, the thing is, uh, how much difference would it make? So if this advisor claims that they can make you an extra 1%, does it really make much difference? Well, in the first example, I said, well, they would have 320,000 to invest because they had to pay 80,000 to the government they would end up 471,000 in their investment after five years. In this example, because you paid a little less tax, you would end up investing 80,000 a year at the same 8%. And by the way, after that, you'd end up with $426,000. And you think, okay, that doesn't make sense, Don. You're actually short 45,000. So it is better to cash it in all at once. I said, oh, wait a sec, wait a sec, not quite so fast here. Because we took out 80,000 a year, your other, the money that was left behind was still earning 7%. <clears throat> and, I don't, and I only use 7% because again, I'm, I'm assuming the, the advisor suggesting they can do 1% more. So let's say that, that 400,000 is earning 7%, but then you take 80,000 out of it. Then the 320 left is earning 7% and so forth. After five years, you still have $101,000 left in the original investment. So at the total, your 426 with the new investment plus the, the 101,000 year, you end up with $527,000. So you end up ahead by doing some tax planning of $56,000 ahead. Same amounts that you end up with, in this case, you end up with most of it in the new investment, a little bit left only because it had continued to grow and the government is off and more importantly your pocket has an extra fifty six thousand dollars after only five years because you didn't pay so much in tax over that time so that would i would consider as option two option three is it does it really make sense to move it in the first place you know why even pay this tax if i even if i make seven percent a lot better you know eight percent big deals one percent well there's there's reasons to sell an investment and one of those reasons is that you may have have too much in one area. I've seen some clients that they've, they kind of got married to a certain stock because they worked there. And so now they're taking on a lot of extra risk. So, so concentration risk is, is, is a big risk because if you've got all your money, say in Bell Canada and Bell has happens to have a bad year or the competitive field changes or what have you, next thing you know, your net worth could drop considerably. So rebalancing your portfolio does make sense. And it's really at the end of the day is, is to help you out and stay within your risk. People kind of get emotionally attached to their investments and it almost becomes collecting money or collecting investments rather than really investing. Because if you kept that 400,000 at 7%, after five years, you'd have 561,000. You say, well, that's way better than the other two options done. 
Well, not really, because you still have to pay tax on this sometime. And depending on your age, in this particular case, he's 65. If you continue to defer that tax, the last thing I like to see clients pay is the 53.53% tax bracket that we often talk about on this show. And you will end up paying it at the estate level at a far worse rate than the 30% of trying to chunk it along a little bit at a time. So this is what really good tax planning will do for you. If you have an advisor that's going through this scenario and going through this, these alternatives with you, you've got an excellent advisor. If you have an advisor that says, just move it all, don't worry about the tax, we'll make up the difference for you, no problem, because our performance is going to be so much better. I'd really question that because nobody has that crystal ball. Um, it really comes down to making sure you do make these decisions based on your risk tolerance um, and also at a tax level and at a state level. So there's all three, all the three of those this kind of come into the decision of, of making this change. And so at the end of the day, I would recommend you see a, get a second opinion to make sure that if you are looking at of moving it in cash, that it was best thing for you on all three phases. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management, all within IG Private Wealth Management. You can reach them at 905-972-7420 or donfox.net. We're going to take a quick break here. We're coming right You are back. listening to a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML. We are planning our financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan are here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can reach them at donfox.net or at IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420. You're talking about knowing your product. What what does this mean? I mean, uh, with a financial advisor, don't they know the product? (laughs) <laughs> yes, they are, they are supposed to know their product. Absolutely, Scott. And it's actually a, a, a regulatory new rule. It's kind of been kicking around for the last couple of years, making sure that advisors know their product. And so what we may have heard and some of the listeners may have seen in the, in the paper recently is some of the banks, in fact, the Royal Bank, the Toronto Dominion Bank and the CIBC have all decided to deal with their own funds because of this know your product rule, thinking that they're helping out the client. So you can imagine you're going off and you're to the, uh, you know, the teller and then they say, okay, well, you should see a, a financial advisor on this particular subject. And they may move you over to that cubicle. It's got the little name tag financial advisor there. And they go through that and then they get punching a few numbers on their computer and they come up with this quick kind of, um, forecast of where you're going to go based on this. And and here's where we recommend investing your money. And coincidentally, all of them are Royal Bank funds, TD funds, or CIBC funds. In the past, up until literally a month or so ago, they would have some CI funds, Fidelity funds, or AGF funds. They would have other, what we call third-party funds. Because who's to say that the banks are going to have the best products? Um, they, they may have some very good ones, but quite often there's holes in their product line. And this is where you'd like to say, okay, I like to have this third party fund. Now, this, by the way, only applies at the bank level. If you have enough money, you get moved up to the, the brokerage side. This does, not, this, does, this, this does not affect you. 
and they offer all their products to their bigger clients. But to the smaller clients, I suppose, I guess they get these bank ones only now. That being said, if you already have third-party funds, you do not have to move them to the bank ones. You get to keep them. But if you have more money to invest, you now have to you now have to get the bank product. So this whole KYP, know your product rule, came from the regulators claiming it was supposed to help consumers by forcing advisors to focus on the funds that best suited their clients' needs. But in reality, what's happened, at least with these three institutions, is that it's, it's no limiting choice. It, li- it limits the options. And, and really, I'm not quite sure, may, maybe some of these advisors per se can, are gonna know a lot more about their own products. Uh, personally, I think they should have known a lot more about their own products beforehand. Um, and in fact, they, it is not that more difficult to know a few extra products being third-party products. I think this is uh, personally a way to make sure they're using more bank funds and therefore not necessarily looking after the banks, uh, the client's best interest, but yet the banks. So it's it it's tricky. Now it's 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 quite opposite in our neck of the ID wealth management has done exactly the opposite. It's quite interesting. We used to manage all our own funds, and we realized that we're not we are not the best managers in the world. And we've now sought out to find the best managers in every little category. Um, a, a perfect example: we have a, a product called iProfile, and the whole purpose of it is to say, okay, if you're going to have a Canadian value fund, we want that fund to be managed by, let's say, Jarlowski Fraser. Well, they also happen to run some of the teachers' pension funds, and they're quite a known in the pension community. They don't; they may not be a retail outfit, but excellent manager, better than what we were doing. So we said, why should we do this? Let's get the client the best return possible. Uh, another one, Aristotle's out of the U.S. BlackRock. For some people out there, may have heard of BlackRock. They're U.S.-based, but they are the largest money manager in the world. They run over $7 trillion. You can only imagine the team that they employ to try to make the best investment decisions and really uncover all rocks to try to say, should I buy this particular stock? Is this one in Asia the, the best company to buy? Is this one in Sweden the best company to buy? They, they have quite the uh, war chest to make sure they make these right decisions. So IG has gone to the exact opposite and said, okay, we're not going to look after, we're not going to run money anymore. We're going to find the best managers and we're going to get them for our clients. And I personally think this is by far looking after the client's best interest rather than, and talking about knowing your client, know your product rule, that whole know your product rule, albeit it is a rule, but it is not that much more difficult for, for an advisor to look through a list of other products that happen to be run by a different institution. We have been planning your financial future. I'm Scott Thompson. Don Fox and Gary Hogan have been here from Fox Group Private Wealth Management. You can reach them through IG Private Wealth Management at 905-972-7420 and donfox.net. Thank you, gentlemen. Another great show. We'll see you next week. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Scott. The preceding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of 900 CHML.